You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. same thing, really, that he asked the disciples. Well, who do others say? I am. Well, some say you're this, some say you're that. Yeah. What do you say? Because until it becomes personal, it will do you no good. You can even come to the place that you get the right conclusion about who he is. You believe he's the Messiah. You believe he's the Christ. You believe he's the Son of God. But until you've made it personal, it will do you no good. You may have grown up in a church. Your family and friends might believe in Jesus. In fact, you may know an awful lot about God and the Bible. But unless you've made a choice to believe and follow Christ for yourself, you'll find yourself facing God in judgment. Today, Pastor Danny will challenge you to examine what you believe about Christ. Knowing Jesus personally is essential and determines your eternal destiny. How do you answer Jesus' question to Peter? Who do you say that I am? Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Mark, chapter 8, as he begins his message, what it means to follow Jesus and why it's worth it. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, not to be confused with Caesarea, which is on the coast by the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful area, uh, very lush. Uh, it sits near the base of uh, Mount Hermon. Unfortunately, back in the Old Testament, it was also known as Baal Hermon because the Israelites worshipped Baal, uh, also Baal Gad. Years later, it was called Panias, uh, named after the Greek god Pan, uh, Caesarea Philippi. So on the way there, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Back in chapter 6 of Mark, we learn that Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And Herod was the one that had John's head removed. And so he was really concerned when he hears miracles are being done by Jesus, and he thinks it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's going to come after me. Others say Elijah. Those that believe that had some scriptural reason to believe that, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 prophesies that before the day of the Lord, Elijah would come and there would be an end times revival through the ministry of Elijah. Others said, well, he's one of the prophets. We don't know which one, one of the prophets. And now, not the million dollar question, the question and the answer 
of which you cannot put a price tag on because this question and the answer to it determines or is at least connected with determining one's eternal destiny. What about you? Yes. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now pause there. We're not done with the text, but it would be helpful now to go to Matthew's record of this because Matthew adds a little more detail that I know will be helpful when we look at it. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15. What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. In other words, you didn't get this because you were hanging around with a group and they said, well, that's who we think he is. But by my father in heaven. So had nothing to do with Peter's IQ. And you'd only need to do a casual study of Peter in his life to know it wasn't because of his IQ. It was a divine, sovereign revelation by the Father to Peter as to who Jesus is. Remember, they've been asking like a few chapters ago in the storm, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, now Peter knows without question because the Father reveals it to him. And even though it's not because of Peter or his smartness, it's a divine revelation from the Father, but even with that said, you have to believe Peter's feeling pretty good right now. And the other guys are going, how come we didn't get that? I wonder if after this, because we know from recorded scripture in the gospels that these same apostles, disciples would argue repeatedly over who's the greatest. And I have to believe that Peter would use this as one of his leverage points that he was better than them, greater than them. Well, I'm the one that got the revelation. And you weren't on the Mount of Transfiguration either. That was just me, James, and John. I mean, Peter's feeling pretty good right now. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That can be an odd verse, but if you understand it in the context of uh, the gospel accounts, I have to believe one of the main reasons is, is because God the Father is working out the exact timing for Jesus to go to the cross. It's not time yet for the Great Commission. It's not time to go tell the world yet. And isn't it ironic, when he does tell us to go into all the world, then he has a challenge with us obeying it. But here he says, now, I'm telling you, I'm warning you, don't tell anybody. Because the perfect timing for the cross is being worked out. And speaking of the cross, verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, stop and think about that. Imagine. Here's Peter, Jesus, Jesus, could, could I talk to you for just a minute? And he pulls him aside and he rebukes Jesus for what he just said that's going to happen in Jerusalem, that Jesus is going to suffer many things, be rejected, and then he's going to die and be raised again. You know how long it takes to go from being a spiritual man or woman 
to an absolute dummy. And sometimes we don't even know we went from being a spiritual person to being a dummy. That's Peter here. Revelation from the Father. Well, who do you say I am? Ah, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, man didn't give that to you, but my Father in heaven. And after that tremendous revelation and bold declaration, now he pulls Jesus aside and looks to correct him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And this is the most stinging rebuke any disciple could ever get, I think. Get behind me, Satan. Really? You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And just like that, Peter goes from from getting a spiritual word from the Father, making a bold declaration based on that revelation, to now... Speaking inspired by hell. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're not speaking by the Spirit of God now. You're not speaking the will of God now. You're not speaking the words of God now. And I think Peter had no idea. You have to believe his motives were sincere. He loves Jesus. He's left everything to follow Jesus. And when Jesus tells him what's going to happen, he he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. And he has no idea that what he's saying is, is not only wrong, but inspired of hell, not of heaven. And then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now let me say there's a lot to unpack from this text. And we won't get into all of it. As a matter of fact, every service, the last point I have in my notes, I haven't gotten to, and that's okay. That's okay. You'll still get the main thing. And all the notes are online if you care about that at all. Some of it we'll look at from a bird's eye view, but we'll get it if you're paying attention. And the first thing from the text, a personal conviction regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Go with me for just a minute to John's Gospel, chapter 18. The context is Jesus is standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, being tried. He's being charged. We know he's innocent, but he's being charged as a criminal. And we know that just as Peter received divine revelation as to who Jesus is, we know, if you study the whole account, that Pilate also was given revelation as to who Jesus is, even to the point of God giving his wife a dream about Jesus. And during this whole trial, uh, in, in the midst of the trial, she sends a note to her husband saying, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've suffered a great deal today in a dream. And it's a confirmation of what 
the Holy Spirit is saying to Pilate about who Jesus is, the very man who stands before him. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, listen to what he says. Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? That's the same thing, really, that he asked the disciples. Well, who do others say? I am. Well, some say you're this, some say you're that. Yeah. What do you say? Because until it becomes personal, it will do you no good. You can even come to the place that you get the right conclusion about who he is. You believe he's the Messiah. You believe he's the Christ. You believe he's the Son of God. But until you've made it personal, it will do you no good. And that personal conviction where you receive a personal Savior is the only path that will get you to what we call heaven. Otherwise, you can know everything about him and you can make right conclusions. And yet, if you've never personalized it, it will do you no good. Coming to terms with who Jesus is personally is essential to being saved. But after being saved, that personal conviction is the only thing that will keep you and me from being swayed by the crowd or saying no to the cost of continuing to follow Jesus Christ after making that initial commitment to him. The second thing in the text is an understanding of what it really means to follow Jesus. And some of us who really know it, I mean, you know it. I mean, you've read the scriptures, you've heard teaching, you know that Jesus, like for example, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, he said to Paul, I'll show him. God said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Told him ahead of time. You see, God is not the kind of God that he says, well, let's get him in first and then we'll tell him what it really means. Let's get him to sign the contract first. And then, then count the cost. No, no, you, you haven't read the Bible, or you don't know much about the Bible if that's what you believe. I mean, you go to places like Luke chapter 9 and verse 57, and you, you understand as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Have you really thought about what you're saying? He said to another man, follow me. And the man replied, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, what he's saying is, after dad dies, then I'll come. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, telling us that his father wasn't a Christian, wasn't saved, wasn't, uh, hadn't followed Jesus. But you go proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And yet Jesus sees some kind of duplicity in this man because he said no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. And you want to get really clear on the cost. You just turn a few pages to Luke chapter 14. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to tell them practically, if you're going to build a tower, make sure you got enough to build it. Otherwise you start building it and you can't finish. 
He says, if you're going to go to war, make sure you got enough of an army to go in and win the battle. Otherwise, don't go into battle. Scripture after scripture where God makes it clear, and Jesus certainly made it clear. Doesn't want some shallow commitment. Doesn't want some just kind of just walk in and then you find out what the cost is. No, think about the cost. He gave his life for you, and he's saying, you give your life for me. And it's the best deal you'll ever make in your life. Hosea's day, chapter 9, verse 7, because of the wickedness in the land, the one who speaks for God, the prophet, it says, is considered a madman. That's interesting because in Acts chapter 26, when Paul's standing before Felix the governor and King Herod, and, and Paul is discoursing on his testimony and about truth, and he gets to the point in the gospel about the resurrection of the dead, and Felix stops him and says, Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. <laughs> And Paul said, I'm not mad. I'm not insane. I'm just as sane as anyone here, maybe more so. And I wish that everybody listening to my voice today would become like me, except for these chains. But you see, on the surface, looking at this man in chain, and he's in chain because of his faith in Jesus Christ, and he's suffering because of his faith in Jesus Christ, and their perspective of him, <laughs> what in the world are you doing? You're nuts, man. But he wasn't. More wisdom than anybody else. Following a glorious path, but, but a path that on this side has a cost. Paul writes to his number one disciple. He said, this guy, I got nobody else like him. You talk about a committed guy. But even Timothy. Paul is right to him in 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, and he says, don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner. Association, just association with Paul would put you in a bad light in that world. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy had pulled back. Timothy had done a lot of crying. He had done some suffering. And Paul says, hey, I remind you, fan into flame the gift that God's given you. Don't pull back. Get back in the, get back in the game. Get back in. The, yeah, I know it's tough. I know, you, you t I know it's tough, he said. But don't be ashamed. You study history, political and papal Rome, as a history of brutalizing, killing true saints of God. Uh, I got a whole list. I got a whole page full. Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, Diocletian, many others, brutally, brutally persecuted Christians. Paul the Apostle was executed by Nero. Polycarp was a direct disciple of John's. Rome burned him at the stake. And then he prayed this amazing prayer. I'm not going to read it, but he made this amazing prayer before they lit the fire. Among those persecuted by Rome were people like John Wycliffe. And guy who was influenced by John Wycliffe, I've mentioned him before, but it's, worthy, it's worthwhile to say again, John Huss. John Huss. He's noteworthy. Why? Because his nickname was the Goose. They burned John Huss at the stake. And somebody after he was burned at the stake for his refusal to deny Christ. And somebody said, the goose has been cooked. And that's where we get the phrase, your goose is cooked. William Tyndale translated the first English Bible taken directly from the Hebrew and Greek text. He was strangulated and then they burned him at the stake. That's how much they hated him. He's already dead, but let's burn him anyway. And here's the third thing we learned from our text today. And boy, is it practical. 
to resolve that nothing and no one will deter me from living out the will of God for my life. Peter, Peter has no clue that he's clueless. After the great revelation, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And sometimes it's the people that seem to love you the most. And maybe even the most committed. I mean, Peter, here's Peter. Rebuking Jesus. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And while his first words about declaring who Christ was were were tremendously spiritual, his words now are from hell. And he's thinking like a mortal man. And he's thinking like somebody who has only the perspective that can see this side and only this life. And that's wrong thinking. A while back, we looked at Acts 21, where Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit is warning him everywhere he goes, I only know that that sufferings and prison await me. And on this particular trip, now God is not only revealing it to Paul through his spirit, uh, by his spirit, but, but these other believers and even ministry associates of Paul's. Acts 21, you can read it on your own, but we covered it not too long ago. And these people are trying to compel Paul and and say, dissuade him. No, you can't go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's telling us and the same thing he's telling you. You can't go. And he says, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to suffer, but to die for the name of Christ. And it says there in the text in Acts 21, "When when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, may the Lord's will be done. Well, as painful as that might have been, that's, that's the conclusion you need to come to, and that's the place you need to be. But can you say that? Oh, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to say it, knowing you've studied it in the Bible, knowing you've heard it taught. It's another thing when the actual events of life begin to work themselves out so that the cost is now reality. You have prayed for your children. As I've prayed for mine, I hope you have. I've prayed since they were conceived. Oh, God, get a hold of their heart when they're young. Oh, God, save their soul. And I pray regularly. Oh, God, may your will be done in their lives. And you pray that prayer. And sometimes for some of us, depending on the path God has for our children, when they come and they say, Dad, God's called me to, and you go, what? You better go back and get a second opinion. And I'm going to give you one right now. I'm not sure that's the Lord. And sometimes the people who love you the most, the one who gave you birth, who carried you, who was conceived in your womb, mom, and you want the will of God for their life until the will of God means that God calls them somewhere where the grandkids are so far away geographically that it's not practical to see them more than maybe once every year or two, if that. And the place he's called them is a place where it's put them in harm's way. And when the reality comes, then the answer to those sincere prayers, and you can become the one, like Peter, that says, wait a minute, let me talk to you for a minute. Let me, we got another thing to talk about here. I, I can't be God. 
We're so thankful to be able to share the Word of God with you here on The Living Word. Thanks for being a part of our listening audience. If you want to hear today's message again, please visit ccfstpete.church. You can also join in our Bible reading plan. Just look under the Resources tab on our website for more information. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment to ask you to partner with us here on The Living Word. Would you join with us in praying for the listeners of this program? You might not realize how powerful prayer can be, especially during such uncertain times. There might be a listener who's really struggling, and God might stir in their heart a renewal of their faith simply by listening to this program. Please pray that each person who hears these messages would find encouragement. Just as we're reminded in Mark, God came to earth as a human, suffered in all the ways we do, and ultimately came to redeem each one of us. That's the takeaway we hope every listener gains from tuning in. Please pray for us also to seek God's will for this program and for it to continue to reach people in a powerful way. Thanks for praying with and for us. With that, we've come to the end of our time with you today. Thanks for joining us as Pastor Danny continued looking at the book of Mark. We hope that you'll tune in again right here on The Living Word.